This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lawrenson. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by L.A. Opera music director James Conlon, talking about the company's production of Jake Hagee's opera, Moby Dick. We'll discuss the challenges of setting an epic work of literature for the operatic stage, and Conlon will tell me just what exactly makes Jake Hagee's music so powerful and thrilling. I can promise you, and I will eat my words, that you will enjoy, is maybe too superficial a word, you will get a lot out of this. My conversation with James Conlon is coming up. It's always great to speak with James Conlon, the music director of Los Angeles Opera. Thank you so much for your time, Maestro. I'm always delighted to be with you, Brian. And I thought we'd start just by uh, reflecting on the 30th anniversary of of this company. This is a big celebration year. How are you feeling about uh, where the company's at as we are in this milestone year for LA Opera? I guess this is my ninth season or so. So uh, on the one hand, I feel like it all went very fast and very quickly. On the other hand, I I feel like I've been here forever. (laughs) So, uh, you know, for me, it's not a job. It's a it's a total identity. I love it here. I love the people I work with. I love Los Angeles. Uh, I love the public, which is a very warm public. And uh, we're in the midst of a artistic growth, which is considerable, uh, year after year. I think that's my job to do that. I hope we're doing that. And that's very positive. What, of course, we want to do is to see many more people at the opera. This is not just L.A. Opera's challenge. It is a challenge to the entire country. Everybody in the United States is uh, uh, trying to fi- find ways to reawaken the habit of going to classical music. It was a habit. I'm old enough to remember when we all learned it in school. And you know, to some degree, arts went out of the schools. Uh, some 30 years ago, and we see the results now. And everybody's talking, well, how, you know, how are you, what are you going to do to be relevant? Well, you know, a Beethoven symphony or an opera by Mozart or Verdi doesn't need to be relevant. It is relevant. However, if people are not attuned to recognize relevance, that's the, their problem, or it is our problem as a society, and it's our problem the institutions, the orchestras, the opera companies, the chamber music series, we are faced with the challenge of how to change that. But I think the I think the terms have to be changed. And the terms are not, is classical music relevant? And my answer is, classical music exists and will always exist, and the relevance is there for he or she who sees it. It's not the other way around. Those pieces don't have to prove themselves to us. We have to be smart enough to see uh, feel, experience what they have to say. And a lot of that is just familiarity. We were familiar. I went to public schools in New York City. We all sang in choruses. We played the tonette. We had a band. We touched the trumpet. We, uh, you know, I was in a string orchestra. Uh, we had music appreciation. We got put in a bus and brought to here. Now, of course, that still exists, but not the way it did. It existed because it was across the board. It was everybody. So what's our big challenge? The same as everybody else's. 
to try to undo the, uh, well, I consider it damage that was done after the 1980s and to bring music, classical music, back into everybody's lives and to make everybody realize it's for everybody. It is not an elite art form. It is not for snobs. It is not, that is, that's baggage that goes around it. Nothing to do with that. You listen to music, it moves you. You can be moved by Mozart and Beethoven. You can be moved by Verdi and Wagner just as much as you can be moved by anything else. And that's what we need to do. Yeah. It's interesting because you say, you know, the, the schools, it's not there across the board anymore. Um, and so a lot of the filling in the gaps has fallen to performing arts organizations like LA Opera. And uh, of course, you've got a great education department here. You know, to what extent is the responsibility on performing arts organizations to, in essence, sort of be their own education arms for, for the public and, and as well as performing arts organizations, as well as presenters? Well, we have inherited the problem now. In other words, I, do I, I think it's the responsibility of society in general. I think, it's a, I think it is the responsibility of governments, federal, state, city, everybody, to provide great education uh, for all their populations. That doesn't seem to be a problem for people in Europe. Uh, you know, people get educated, period. I mean, here we spent a lot of money to go to schools and things like that. Uh, public schools, anywhere, public schools, private schools, everything. That is, the, that is society's responsibility to itself. Now, we all know that that's not going to happen in terms of government activity so much. So it falls to us who really care, believe in the importance of the arts, to roll up our sleeves and figure out how to do it. We have a fabulous educational department at LA Opera. Stacy Brightman is one of the, uh, I'd like to uh, nominate her for the St. Teresa Award. I mean, she's Mother Teresa Award. She's, she's extraordinary, and she does extraordinary work with, uh, I would say, interested people of all ages. It is education for young persons, teenagers, university people, but it's also education for people of all ages. She is, uh, she's great. And it's, uh, we are very fortunate to have her. Los Angeles is very fortunate to have her and her whole program. And we are trying to do as much as we can. We can't do it all by ourselves. Talking about Moby Dick, uh, which opens soon here at LA Opera, um, and I'm thinking about great American opera composers, and the name Tobias Picker comes to mind, and the name Jake Hagee comes to mind, and these these are, are two of the top American opera composers today, it seems. Would, would you agree? Well, I don't like rating people, but sure. I, ha I uh, this is the first time I'm conducting any of Jake's music. Uh, much of which I have not, more in the, in the area of songs and things like that. But, and Tobias, I actually conducted the world premiere of An American Tragedy at the Metropolitan Opera. I'm a big fan of Tobias. I'm a big fan now, especially, of Jake Hagee. Uh, to me, this is a marvelous opera, very beautiful music, very powerful, powerful dramatically, very, very well written, and an opera that I believe is successful because it is uh, accessible, I believe, almost immediately to a normal quote-unquote person. You don't have to be uh, a sophisticate or a person who's totally schooled in contemporary music or anything to, to, to get it. He has a direct, as Tobias does, a direct way of writing that I believe goes right to the heart. And th but this is particularly powerful work, and I'm thrilled that we're doing it. And I got up and said it on our own 
in our own broadcast here, uh, to everybody, don't pass this up. You say, okay, well, I like La Boheme and I like La Traviata and Rigola. So do I, by the way. <laughs> but I don't want to go, ah, I'm going to skip this one. Don't skip it. Don't skip it because it is, uh, I, I can promise you, and I will eat my words, that you will enjoy is maybe too superficial a word. You will get a lot out of this. And and in the, in the totality of the music, but also a marvelous, marvelous production. Now, this production is the original production, and it's gone a lot of places, and it continues. I believe that this. I believe that this opera will be around. I absolutely believe this will survive uh, because it's so good, and this production is wonderful. And I uh, encourage everybody to come to it, even if you think you don't like contemporary music. And even if you don't like it, outright don't like it, I don't see anything not to like in this opera. Hmm. Uh, it has a, I think it has appeal for the, for the casual listener, as it were, and it also has a lot of appeal for those of us who are in the, who are in the profession. For you, someone who obviously has been conducting operas for, for decades, when you first encountered the score, when you first dove in and really set about discovering the music of Jake Hagee and, and this work in particular, what about it was there that just grabbed you, that instantly captured you about, uh, about the music? It's very hard to say, what is it? But I started to look at it. I started to play it. I started to listen to it. And right away it spoke to me. And right away I said, yeah, this is, this is for me. I can feel, I can feel this music. There's something there. It's not, it's not just an intellectual exercise. There's music, it's, there's drama, and uh, it, it appealed to me immediately. I've been no, I've been very excited through the whole process of learning it and and uh, rehearsing it. it. It is true. At my age, I don't, I shouldn't say I don't do that much music that I haven't done because I've been doing. I've actually done a lot of works in the last few years that I've never done, and uh, this is certainly one of them. I'm very, very, uh, very enthusiastic. You used the word accessible a moment ago, and in some cases, um, especially for like new music, contemporary music audiences, that is a pejorative word. That is a word that you want to avoid for whatever reason. I don't know. But accessibility um, doesn't have to be a negative, right? Accessibility is, is sort of has always been the goal from Mozart on throughout history, right? I mean... It's used as a pejorative now in some circles. Yes. Which circles? I don't use it as a pejorative. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have used it in this context as of a course. pejorative. Yeah, what, uh, what I think, though, perhaps people can look down there. I mean, there are certainly other composers, other compositional schools. Uh, they may prefer to look down their nose at this. Maybe they think it's too populist. Maybe they think it's too direct. Maybe they don't think it's sophisticated. Maybe it doesn't follow their take on what contemporary music, and that's fair enough. Everybody's got their tastes. Um, however, I don't, I, I stand by my words. Mm -hmm. if, uh, if it's music that will speak to many people, I think many people should be listening to it. I mean, I agree. I just, I, I've heard that word used. It's, and I, I think it's, I think it's the contemporary music purists, and again, that's sort of a pejorative word too, right? Who, who it is in my book, purists? Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. that's pejorative. So I, I think it's the, kind of that's the crowd that I'm that I'm sort of referring to, no, I guess. Very, without getting polemic, I don't I don't think orthodoxy, I don't think purism, I don't think snobbery serves anybody's interests 
in our world today. Our world today is fractured over partisanship, orthodoxy, intolerance, and one form or other of feeling that I have the answer, I am right, nobody else is right if they don't think like me. This is what's wrong with the world, not what's right with the world. And that goes for classical music and music in general. That's extremely well said. I'm, I'm glad you put it that way. Um, taking a large work of literature, taking you know a, an epic work of literature, such as Moby Dick or Prokofiev did War and Peace, Tchaikovsky did Pushkin, what are some of the challenges for a, a composer and for a librettist to sort of capture the essence of the drama, respect the original, but also make it something that can be experienced that has a, a strong dramatic flow to it. What are some of the challenges for taking a big work like Moby Dick and distilling it to something that works dramatically really well on the stage? The first thing you have to do is cut out enormous amount of uh, material that cannot fit into the space of, of, an, of an opera. And um, for some persons, that's already a certain uh, betrayal. You say, well, how can you do that? How, you know, how do you dare to write this massive piece? You, now, a novel is not an opera. So you have to, you have to just uh, pare down what it is to what you want to say. I want to say right away, that composers have been doing this for centuries. There is almost no such thing as a literal reproduction of a or certainly a piece of literature. And this is not, I don't think this should be understood as a betrayal of literature. I think it should be, should be understood as what goes, into the, what goes into making an opera and making an effective opera. An effective opera, like all other pieces of works of art, has to prove itself on its own, on its own merits, but also on its own standards. In other words, we, uh, a great opera is one that holds the stage through its music, through its drama, through its, uh, through its being a vehicle for dramatic music and vocal dramatic music. And in the end, it doesn't matter what the source was. Can you be authentic to that source, or do you actually create something else? which has a reference, but it is something else. And my answer is, it is something else. Mm. Now, if you take Pushkin, you mentioned Pushkin, Eugene Onegin, Tchaikovsky. The character of Tchaikovsky's music and the character of, the, of Eugene Onegin is very, very, very different from Pushkin. But it doesn't matter. You go, if you're going to the opera to, to hear Tchaikovsky's music, setting a story, telling a story, it's of no relevance at that moment. Now, later on, you can sit back and say, well, let's see, what are the differences? Okay, that's interesting. It's enlightening. But it still doesn't change the fact that, uh, in the end, music is about, the music is about the music. And, uh, you know, you can't say, well, what is the Beethoven fifth? Bop, 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 bop. What's it about? It's about bop, 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 bop. It's not about something else. <laughs> does it have human emotions? Yes. Does it have drama? Yes. Does it have background? Yes. Is there a context? Yes. But in the end, it's about that and nothing else. And so I think this is what you have as a starting point is how we should... We should look at pieces of literature that have become operas and judge the opera on its own merits. Does it work or does it fail on its own terms? It is impossible to reproduce one great work of art in another form. Moby Dick 
is a monumental piece of literature, and you can't change. You, you're not changing that. You're not, uh, Faust is the same. So how many Fausts have been written? None of whom are going to exhaust the possibilities of Goethe. They're not. But some interesting things have come out of it. The uh, there are very few composers who actually have a, have a deep, deep commitment and a great talent for getting to the core of the literature. One of them, to me, the greatest, is Benjamin Britten. And Britten did this for opera in the English language because he had a special genius for it. There are people who don't like Verdi's Macbeth because they say, well, it's sort of silly compared to the, there's all those witches and things like that. But it's not silly. It's, it's, something, it's something of its own. And I think that most people will agree that Otello is as great as Othello, and I think most people will say that Falstaff is actually better than the original Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. But in the end, none of that matters. Mm-hmm. It's about mm-hmm. the work that you see and hear on the stage. Yeah, I, that, I think that's an important point because, you know, it's almost like um, you go to an art museum and you see people passing by these great works of art and then they pull out their phones and they snap a photo of like Van Gogh or something. It's like that will never be, you know, anything close to recreating that experience. Um, however, you then have that image that reminds you of that experience that you had. So in a way, you know, there is some sort of sort of validity to um you know, that sort of experience, and you're pulling out your phone oh, here. Oh, I've, because I guess I'm as bad as everybody else, but I just... Oh, uh, no, me too. You know, I, mean, I was not... in Vienna for a few weeks, uh, for a few weeks, and I went uh, to this Storisch's uh, Kunstmuseum, and I took out all these pictures, and I love <laughs> I love pulling them out and looking at them on my phone, and I do. Of course. <laughs> so. And and it's not, you're not recreating the art, but you're recreating the experience that you had in that you, moment, right? You remember it, and you see it, and uh, it makes you feel good, and you know, uh, uh, I have my my mouse pad is uh, is the Bruchel uh, Tower of Babel. Who cares if it's not as good as the original? It just it makes me happy to look at it. So, <laughs> but you know, exactly. Talk a little bit about the the dramatic arc of of Moby Dick um, and and the, the sort of pacing. You mentioned Verdi's Otello, of course, and so I immediately think of um, you know how it's perfectly paced drama. Um, how does how does Moby Dick? How does Jake Hagee's um, drama and the and the the pacing stack up? How how does how does he do? Well, I think he does very well. It's a for me the way you judge that is uh, you sit there to say is this superfluous? Could this have been left out, or is this a weak moment, or is this an uninspired moment? Turn that around, you feel something. Uh, at every moment of the opera, you know it's well constructed, it's well paced. Uh, I see it. I see it as an extremely well done, effective construction. There is no point, at least from my point of view, that one's mind wanders and say, "Well, what is this? Or why is this there?" Jake Hagee has a natural understanding of the theater and a natural understanding of how to use voices in the theater. Plus, the fact is that uh, he has a, a marvelous mastery of the orchestra, hmm. extremely well written for the orchestra. So that's what I look at. And you know, talk about War and Peace, you can't translate the long reflections of the author, you know, Tolstoy's political theories of the, you know, the, the, his, his, the whole the whole section on history, what does history mean? Well, you can't, you can't do that. You're not going to do that in opera. An opera is not a lecture. 
and Moby Dick, of course, is I mean, it's a very long book. It's, you know, <laughs> I mean, um, there's so much material there that you can't possibly put in. But it, you know, if you're interested in that material, read the book. It's not the book. You want to read the book? Read the book. Yeah. And then, if you want to hear the opera, come and listen to the opera and see how mm-hmm. how, how how you feel about it. Yeah. Tell me about your cast. J.R. DeMoris is, uh, of course, already uh, having done this production several times. He's made this role his own in a very extraordinary way. He's a charismatic presence on the stage, personality. Uh, Captain Ahab is a very strong personality. He's driven by an obsession to find this whale Moby Dick and kill him because he had an encounter with him and he he bit off his leg. And so the you see a man that has the power to influence other human beings because the crew is uh, very mixed on the subject of the captain. They see they see they they follow him. He's a powerful personality. He has and he influences them. At the same time they can they can see some of what's wrong. And there's another character, Starbuck, um, who by the way, for anybody who's curious, Starbucks coffee is named after Starbuck. I thought that might be a good reason for everybody to come out so that they know when they're drinking Starbucks coffee that Starbuck, who, uh, who is um, just under the captain in the hierarchy of the ship, uh, who is an uh, antagonist morally. He, uh, they're, they're both religious men in their different ways. And uh, it would, should be said that the, he stands there as a man who pleads with Captain Ahab to be reasonable and uh, moral in his choices, but Captain Ahab sees himself as an extension of God and does not question his own obsession. Now, we can stand aside and say this man is obsessed with killing a whale, which he shouldn't, it's not a very moral goal to have, but uh, he's, he's convinced of his own. So we, what do we see? We see obsession, we see fanaticism, we see, we see the ability of the powerful, because on your ship the captain is like an emperor, to affect the lives of others, and we, by in a greater metaphorical way, we can also see see this as a uh, question about all of our the leaders. I don't mean the individual political leaders, but I mean those people who have power in our world, and we follow them or are oppressed by them or whichever. Captain Ahab starts to become a, a universal example, applicable of what it is the relationship of the common person, the working man, the working man who's on that boat with a man who has a vision and he wants to impo- he wants to fulfill that vision. Well, this is also an implicit criticism, critique, uh, questioning of our hist- our own country's faith and history and in its uh, determination to let nothing stand in its way. The pioneering, the pioneering instinct. Manifest destiny, that terrible term that we, br- we were brought up with in school, just to assume, yes, it was destiny. Who, who made it our destiny to conquer the wor- the, this co- continent from one side to the other? And to do what? To destroy, destroy human beings and pa- everything in its path? Because why? Because we were, we were destined to do this. We were destined to become great. And then you, you, you know, there's an implicit criticism of the, the robber barons uh, of, of the 19th century, of, the, of untamed capitalism, where it doesn't ma- you know, your goal is money, you make money, this is what you do. The whaling industry, 
it all comes in under question in Melville. It's there, of course, by implication in the drama, but, but the drama operas are about emotions, and Jake Heggie and Gene Shear, with whom I've worked also, as a marvelous, absolutely marvelous intellectual librettist writer, they have grasped the humanity of the characters, and that's what they, that's because you can, in the end, music can only express feelings. You, you can't really discuss the mathematical uh, formula, theorems. It's about feelings. And so they've translated it into the human beings there. And he's made Captain Ahab, he's grasped that Captain Ahab is a, is a complex. It's not just the evil Macbeth or the wicked Iago. He's a complicated, complex individual. Hmm. Uh, the original, the initial run in 2010 in Dallas um, sold at 94% capacity. Um, San Francisco did 90%. San Diego did 84%. So this opera sells tickets. This opera does well at the box office. What helps get the word out? How it, is, it, it can't just be word of mouth, but what, what has been the key to this opera's um, success at the box office? Well, I believe it is word of mouth. It is word of mouth. Well, if, if you're all your friends say, hey, we saw this, yeah. don't miss it, which is what I hope people are going to say after our opening, that, that don't miss this, don't, don't miss this. It is so powerful, yeah. and this is such an extraordinary production that I know that everybody who comes is going to react to it. And the problem that all of us have in our, in our profession is not to get people to like things once they get there. It's to get them to come in the first place because there's a reticence. If I don't know something, I'm not going to spend my money or time to go out and say, well, why not? <laughs> Be curious and come out. And I, I, in this case, I promise, I promise an extraordinary evening and experience. You're very passionate about this. I am. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really looking forward to this opera. Thank you for having me, and uh, I'm glad you're encouraging everybody to come out because it's this is they should not miss this. I will find him. I will destroy him. James Conlon is the music director of Los Angeles Opera. He's conducting the company's performances of Jake Hagee's opera Moby Dick, based, of course, on the Herman Melville novel. Six performances at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion at the Music Center, October 31st through November 28th. You can get all the details right here at laopera.com. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lawrence.